Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Hey, that was really good. That was like the best good morning. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Hey, before we get started this morning, I want us to pray together as a church family. Had a local pastor, Bill Purvis, had a stroke. He's a pastor at Cascade, and he's a tremendous leader in our community, and there are a lot of people that are going to be in heaven over the years for the ministry at Cascade Hills, and he had a stroke Thursday or Friday, and I want us to pray together for, for him and his family. Lord, we come to you today with a little heavy heart. Lord, we lift up uh, Bill Purvis and his family and the whole Cascade uh, church family uh, as, they, as they work through um, some healing that you can do. We just sang a song about healing. Lord, you are the healer, and Lord, I lift them up that you would comfort them, that you would give them a peace that it really does surpass understanding, that you would bring healing uh, into the church and into uh, Dr. Purvis's uh, body. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of uh, little housekeeping sorts of things. It is cool, I have to say this, that uh, this weekend my oldest son was down here um, working on the farmhouse yesterday, and my youngest son is here today playing uh, guitar over here. He's the one that has more hair than I do. And so it's cool when your kid, you know, if you got kids that are two or three years old, you just don't get it. That when, when your parents told you in a blink of an eye, they'll be grown, brother, grown and gone. And it's just so cool when they come home. So I'm so thankful Will is here and Zach was here yesterday. A um, couple of other little things before we get started. Uh, the next baptism, the next God plunge is going to be the Sunday after Easter, and you know, last week we had a really we, we worked through the very beginning of the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, and we talked about uh, Jesus's baptism and what that meant, and and uh, it was a great conversation about the God plunge, and we had men Thursday night had 25 men uh, Thursday night at the uh, at the Trailblazers men's ministry, and they're talking about going down to the river and baptizing in the river and going to a lake and baptize. We're going to do something. I don't know what we're going to do that Sunday. I don't know that we can tote the whole church down to the hooch, but we're going to do something on that Sunday after Easter. Just know that's coming. I want you to know also that this is in your seat for a reason. It's for you to pick up and take with you and invite. If you think it is cool what God is doing in our church family, invite your friends. Invite somebody. Invite your mama and your daddy and your kids and your family to come Join in and worship with us, number one. Number two, this little brochure is out at the connections desk, and it, it, it runs through our missions and outreach in our church. This is for this year. It's got a couple of mission trips that we're going to be doing. It tells about the different outreach things that are going on in our church family. Grab one of these and read through it and join in. We've got some really cool stuff going on. You also have in your uh, seat a uh, uh, little decal. Get that decal and stick it, stick it on your car. So there's a lot of stuff that is going on in our church family. You know, we are, Richard said, we are in the second week of a walk through the gospel according to Mark. It's not Mark's gospel, it's the gospel of Christ, but it's the gospel according to Mark. It's really the gospel according to Peter that Mark wrote. We talked about that a little bit last week too. But last week we talked through his baptism and what that meant but we also had a really, really powerful conversation about identity and about who the Lord says that we are compared to who 
the world, the flesh, and the devil says we are. And it's so uncanny the way God does stuff. That part of that message was really honestly in transparency was not part of the message until uh, Thursday, last, the Thursday, last Thursday. Um, it, it doesn't happen much, but God just really put in my brain or in my heart or something that we needed to talk about that. And about the same time that was happening, the leaders in the women's ministry were changing, and I didn't know this and she didn't know this, they were changing what they were going to do on Thursday night for the next week or two to have to do with identity. So it is so clear that God is speaking to us about who we are. And we went through 20 or 25 probably passages quickly last week. Y'all, there's 250 different passages where the Lord tells us in different ways that we're his child and that he loves us and he wants to be in a relationship with us. So that was last week. This week, you know, the rest of chapter 1 and 2 and a couple of verses into 3 uh, talk about the early, the describe and portray the early uh, ministry around, Jesus' early ministry around the Sea of Galilee. And so today we're going to look at five or six verses in chapter 3, 7 through 12. This passage is really a summary of everything up to this point. And it's been in chapter 1 and 2 in, in the Gospel according to Mark, it's been a, a like a video of bam, bam. I mean, we talked last week about the Roman nature of this gospel, that it's so fast moving. And that's the way the beginning, the first two chapters in Mark are. And then he kind of hits the pause button in the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 7. He says, let me stop this action for a minute and let's just kind of sum up what, what I've been teaching you through these first two chapters. And he introduces, if you remember, in the very first verse of chapter 1, he introduces the subject of his book, and that is, or his gospel, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, not the gospel of Mark, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it identifies Jesus as the Son of God. And just remember that all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the core, their purpose is to describe who Jesus is so that we would understand that he is God. Immediately, Mark affirms this by the testimony of John the Baptist in the, the second, third, fourth, uh, fifth verse of chapter 1. And then in verses 9 through 11, he affirms that Jesus is the Son of God by the testimony of God himself who speaks audibly, audibly, the text says, from heaven when he identifies him and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He affirms him by the Holy Spirit who descends upon Jesus like a dove. And then in verses 12 and 13, Jesus is carried out into the desert to be tempted, and he's affirmed as God's son by his triumph over Satan in the desert. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, Mark shows us how, how Jesus kind of begins the, his ministry of preaching the gospel, and then it's off to the races. He sets it all up at the beginning of chapter 1, and then in verse 14, he just takes off. You know, he, show, he shows us how he calls his guys, he calls his apostles and his disciples to follow him. He gives an account of how Jesus unleashes his power over disease and over demons. We talked about that in one of the songs that they sang this morning. He tells us several stories in these chapters about healings, and then he comments on the fact that there were many, many more 
healings. He tells us uh, different in- incidents uh, about the casting out of demons. Testimony, testimony to the fact that the Lord has power over the natural world and power over the supernatural world. Power over the physical and power over the spiritual world. And y'all, only God has that kind of power. As a healer, as a healer, Jesus creates eyes that can see when there weren't any eyes that can see. He creates ears that can hear when the ears couldn't hear. He creates limbs where there were no limbs. He gives life to dead folks. And there is no explanation, no logical, rational explanation for this, for who he is other than he is God. He jumps right into the supernatural world with such crazy power that the demons just freak out and scream at his very presence when he drives them out of his victims. He does this all throughout the first couple of chapters. And then uh, at the beginning of chapter 3, which is the end of the first section, the first block of material that Mark goes through, he attacks Judaism. He attacks Judaism saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And you've got to understand, Sabbath observance was at the very heart of Judaism. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And that strikes a day. It's really he's beginning to strike a deadly blow against their religious system. Ultimately, it cost him his life. But he begins it here at the beginning, the first four or five verses of chapter 3. And so after this kind of flow in, in chapter 1 and 2 in the very beginning of chapter 3, all these evidences that Jesus is God's Son and only He could have authority over, over disease and over demons, authority over even, He says here, over the Sabbath law, His authority is divine. His authority is divine. His power is divine. And then Mark hits this pause button in verse 7, and this is, I want to give you like a still photo, sort of a still photo that begins in verse 7. So verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The demons knew who he was. God declared who he was. The evidence is overwhelming. It just makes it obvious who he was, and then so you got to ask, why the people in mass, why did the people not get demons knew, God knew, why, how come the people didn't get it? Why do you go through this whole book, and in mass, they don't just jump up and say, you are the Son of God, we get it, you are the Son of God. God says it, the demons say it, finally at the end, of the, the, his guys kind of struggle with it for a while, but fine. and then finally, at the end of the book, a Roman soldier says it, but what about the Jews, the lost sheep of Israel, that even says he came for? Isn't this evidence, and I'm going to give you more, but isn't this evidence convincing enough? And the truth of the matter is, is there was a barrier. There's a massive, massive barrier. 
and we get insight into this barrier in chapter 2 in verse 21 where it says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. In other words, the new from the, the, new from the old and a worse tear kind of results. And what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying this message that I bring cannot really be connected to Judaism. He says you can't sew those two things together. It is a completely separate deal. And this creates a ginormous barrier. It did for me 16 years ago. It absolutely did. Jesus, he never, came, he never claimed to be some kind of a reformer, simply wanting to reform Judaism. He didn't come and say to them, you got a lot of things that are wrong in your worship, and I came to kind of fix those things. He didn't, he didn't do that. He came to abolish them. He came to abrogate it, he, to nullify it, to bring it to an absolute end. He inaugurates a new covenant that ends the old covenant because the old, it's because it's unacceptable to God. Jeremiah, Jeremiah says this in chapter 31. I need my specs. I need a large print Bible. Jeremiah 31, here's what he says. Jeremiah says, and this is seven, eight hundred years before Christ. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. He doesn't say I'm going to take an old covenant and somehow renew it. He doesn't say I'm going to take the old covenant and have somebody come and fix it. He doesn't say I'm going to, I'm going to reform the... No, he says, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then he says, for I will forgive their wicked wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Y'all, that is exactly what he's talking about. It's a new covenant, and it does away with the old covenant. It doesn't do away with the truce in the Old Testament. That is not at all what I'm saying. The covenant changes. Jesus ends this shadow of a religion that was in the Old Testament. And that, that, it always pointed to life, and it pointed to salvation, because it ne but, but it, never, it never provided that salvation or that life, because by means of the old covenant, which was the keeping of the law, no one could ever be saved because nobody could ever keep it. You can't do it. That's why he has to do away with it. The old covenant said there's life, that there was eternal life, but it just couldn't do anything to provide it. The old message was that sinners must come to God, but you can't come to God. There was life for sinners, but not in that, not in that system. Not in that system. 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 3, Paul calls the old covenant a ministry of death because it, that's where it leads. It leads to death. The old covenant said God is separate and distant, and you can't get near him. How can we illustrate that? If you think about the temple complex... All the people are out in the courtyard. This is the way the temple complex is described in the scriptures. They're out in the courtyard. Inside, there's a holy place. 
Inside of there is the Holy of Holies where people can't really go. No, but that's where God dwelt, inside the Holy of Holies. And the high priest could go in there one day a year and they tied a rope around his ankle because no one else could go in. And if he were to croak while he was in there, they'd have, that's probably not the right word to use, but if he'd die while he was in there, nobody could go in and get him. They'd have, so they put a rope around him so that they could pull him out. He only got to go in there for a minute on the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur. So the Old Covenant, it said that there is life. It said that there is salvation. You know, it said that there is forgiveness, that there's heaven, there's intimacy with God, but not through that system that was in place. That is what made acceptance of Jesus for them so difficult because it meant completely turning their back and forsaking Judaism. And when Jesus began his ministry, according to the Gospel of John, the first thing that he did was he went into the temple at festival time and he took a whip, John 2.15 says, and he threw people out. This was a place, y'all, where there was tens of thousands of people. This temple structure is massive. The Sadducees were there. The Pharisees were there. The chief priests, the high priests, they were all there. And they're basically running a den of thieves, an operation where they're scamming folks. They're taking their money by the crooked exchange of coins, which is for the temple offerings, and they have put illegitimate prices on the animals that their system, their very system said they had to sacrifice, and they put illegitimate prices on them. And, y'all, there was a lot of reasons why, uh, why they could have resisted the efforts of Jesus to to just clean this place out, but that's not what happened because nobody could withstand his power. And so he literally evacuated the place with a whip and he was striking a blow. If you can imagine him there, he's striking a blow at the very heart of Judaism when he says, this has nothing to do with my father. That is what he said in there. This has nothing to do with my father. And at the end of his ministry, Mark covers this in chapter 11, the last week of Christ's life, he, he's in Jerusalem. He does the very same thing again. And through the years, this uh, narrative in, John, in uh, Mark 11, people have called it the, the cleansing of the temple. And it's probably not a good phrase to use, honestly, because he wasn't saying, if we can just clean this place up a little bit, if we can, if we can just, just clean it up, we're good. If we can call Mary Maids over here to clean it up a little bit, we'll be okay. If we can just get rid of, uh, of this, just whitewash it a little bit. If we can just fix some of the corruption and the messed upness, hey, this temple has a future. Listen, y'all, here's the deal. The day that Jesus arrived, the temple had no future. This was not the cleansing of the temple. This was an announcement of the removal and the destruction of everything that the temple was. And this last week of Jesus' life, what did he say? He said not one stone would be uh, left on another. The whole thing is coming down. And then 35-ish years later in 70 A.D., the Romans came in and smashed that temple to smithereens. And you know what? That system was done. Jesus was pronouncing destruction on that temple. He was giving them a preview of, of a coming attraction. There was no future in that temple. 
There was no future for sacrifices. There was no future for the temple priesthood, no future for a system of law and ceremony and works as a means to salvation. And that is why it is obliterated. It's not about the sacrifices. It's not about the priesthood. It's not about the works. It's not about the ceremony. And you know what? There's never been a replacement temple. There's never been another sacrifice made. Never. Not another sacrifice. Not after 70 A.D. There's never been another priesthood. The whole system was brought to an end and the Lord brought the new covenant which established, y'all, what had always been true, that salvation is by faith and faith alone. And that faith had to be placed in Him, not by law, not by rules, not by regs, not by, by works, not by ceremony. Salvation is by faith and faith alone. It's always been that way. They just messed it up. For 2,000 years they messed it up. Again, John 20, 31. And this is like the... This is like the purpose statement of the book of John. And it says, These things are written... And he's saying, All these things I've written, that's what John's saying. These things that I have written are written for one reason and one thing, one, one reason only, and that is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's the point of all of the Scripture. It's the point of the Gospels. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So Mark's unfolding this story, and it is centered, as all of the Scriptures are, on Jesus Christ and on His credentials as the Son of God. And the credentials are stunning. I said before, nobody ever really argued with that. Uh, nobody ever really argued with what he did. Nobody ever denied what he did. Nobody ever tried to explain away really what he did. And yet the people in mass did not accept him because the barrier that was up was they would, they would have to forsake the Judaism that had woven its way into every single aspect of their lives. It was so embedded and ingrained in them that they could not begin to conceive of life without it. And there was no explanation for Jesus other than he is God. No explanation. But human depravity is deep. And unbelief is deep. It was deep then and it is deep today. Human depravity was deep then and it is deep today. And religion, religion provides a super thick tomb in which to bury that unbelief. It's tough. Nonetheless, after we get through this first act in Mark, chapter 1, 2, and the beginning of 3, um, Jesus has truly achieved some crazy popularity. And we get a glimpse of that in the text that we just read, uh, Mark 7 through 12. And I want to give you three aspects to this picture uh, that Mark provides in, in verse 7. And number one, it is the popularity of Jesus, his popularity. Verse 7 says, He withdrew, Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. Nobody had ever been this popular. Nobody. In this short period of time, He gained incredible fame. Verse 7 says, Then He withdrew to the sea with His disciples. Backing up to the previous paragraph at the very beginning of chapter 3, 
He was in a synagogue in Capernaum. Capernaum's this main city in the top of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is sort of in the northern part of Israel. Israel's divided into two sections, Galilee up here in the north and Judea down here in the south. Capernaum is his HQ. It's Jesus' headquarters during the about a year or so that he is ministering in all the little towns and villages around the sea. And so he's in a synagogue there. And he heals this man on the Sabbath, which irritates so bad the Pharisees because they think it's a violation of the Sabbath law. And so in verse 6 of chapter 3, the Pharisees went out and they immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. And they were called Herodians because they were King Herod's guys. They were people who followed King Herod. And so they conspired, the Herodians conspired with the Pharisees. And the Herodians were politically motivated and the Pharisees were religiously motivated. And they got together and they conspired to kill him. That's what they did. That's what happened in verse 6. And this is kind of understandable because they get it. Now, they don't get that he is the Christ, but they kind of get what's going on. His power is unmistakable. They can't even argue it. They get, they get that his message is the law as a means of salvation is over with. It never even was anyway. That, that was just their perception. They knew that he was calling for utter, the utter destruction of their system, and so they wanted to kill him. The Herodians said the political system he's after. The Pharisees said the religious, quote, system he's after. Now verse 7 makes some sense because he withdrew with his guys to the sea. And it is really an act of, of protection and maybe even common sense. Now he's already had four confrontations with these religious leaders. Three in chapter 2 and the one that I just pointed to, which was the most hostile of all of them because they're conspiring to kill him. But it ain't going away. It is going to go on and on and on and on and on throughout his entire ministry. And so Jesus knew that he needed to get away from this immediate danger because it is not God's time yet for him to be arrested. You do know that God's got a timeline. He's got a plan, and it wasn't time for that yet. Jesus doesn't want to expose his, his guys, his disciples, to any more danger, and so he withdraws to the sea in verse 7 and 8 say that it was a great crowd, easily tens of thousands of people. His fame had been spreading all over the place. And it says here that the crowd comes from both Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. And if you go back to chapter 1, you can see how his ministry and sort of his following had grown over the weeks and over the, the months. Look at verse 21. He went to Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, began to teach, and it says they were all amazed at his teaching. Verse 28 said that his fame had spread everywhere. This is chapter 1. Verse 32 says the whole city, the whole city brought the, the sick and the demon-possessed to him. Verse 39 says he went throughout all Galilee preaching and casting out demons. Verse 45, again, it tells us that he went everywhere. The crowds kept growing and growing and growing. Nothing in the history of the world had been seen like this. And you've got to understand that at this period of time in history, there was no real medical care system. There was not like Piedmont Hospital of Jerusalem. None of that stuff existed. There was no real healing by any sort of medical system. And it was a difficult time period. Life expectancies were short. There's a massive illness all over the place 
and the attraction for all of these tens of thousands of people who were ill and, and had friends or family members who were ill, that his attraction was unbelievable because he was bringing real physical healing to them. They were way more interested, way more interested in relieving their suffering and their demon torment than his theology. They, did not, they didn't sit down and have a seminary class with him. They wanted to be healed, and so they came. And they came from Jerusalem, and they came from Idumea in the south, and they came from, and if you can picture Israel, they came from all over, northwest, uh, north, south, east, and west of that sea. They came from all over the place. And it says a great number in verse 8. And they came because they'd heard everything that he was doing. And again, I tell you, nobody's denying those things. And so, as a footnote, it is really remarkable testimony that totally indicts the ultimate unbelief and rejection of Christ by the leaders uh, and, and the people. Because nobody denies the miracles. They affirm the miracles. Nobody denies that he has power over the kingdom of darkness over the agents of, of hell, and still they reject him and ultimately scream for his blood, you know, crucify him, crucify him. And we are reminded again that this false religion, this system, captures souls and sends them to hell. In fact, the, the crowd is so threatened in verse 9, says he told his disciples to get a boat ready because of the crowds so they wouldn't crush him. He was literally afraid that he would be crushed by all these folks. They were a mob. And in a sense, they're a desperate mob. In a sense, they're a wild mob, and they're clamoring just to get near him to be healed. They want healing. And this little boat, well, what will it do? It'll get him a little bit out in the water just so that he can get away from the mob and speak from there and not be crushed. He's using common sense even though he's the son of God and he could, he could do whatever he wants. He wants to use common sense and get him and his guys kind of away. And so this popularity of, of Jesus is unmistakable. The general response is they come after him. But here's what I'll tell you. They want the miracles. They want the miracles, but they never want the gospel. Today's world, a lot of people want the miracle. They want the miracle, but they don't want the gospel. Not or don't pray a day in their life, something happens. They want the miracle, but they don't want the gospel. The two are tied together. And sadly, at the end of the day, he pronounces judgment on, on their unbelief, and many of them are the very people that he brought physical healing to. So number one in this snapshot by Mark is his popularity. Number two, the second thing we see is the power of Jesus. His fame is driven by his power. Look at verse 10. For he had healed many so that all who had disease or afflictions or illnesses pressed around him to touch him. He'd healed a ton of folks. Remember, we walked through some of that in chapter 1. There's constant display going on all the time. This word for afflictions or disease or healings in the Greek is mastiho, and it's the Greek word for a scourge or for a whip. And it's a funny way to refer to an illness. We use the word disease or affliction, but the Greek is mastiho, a scourge or a whip. And why would they refer to it that way as if somebody is whipping them or scourging them or beating them up? And here's why. that they're In their system of belief, 
anybody who had an illness like this, any disease was under the judgment of God. And that is why they asked the blind man, who sinned? This is in, uh, in chapter 5 or 6, I think. Who sinned? Did you sin or did your parents sin? Because if you had illness, you were under judgment from God. And, and the people saw themselves as being punished by God, and that gave the leadership a reason to keep them out of the synagogue, a reason because they're unclean, a reason to keep them out of society. A re- they were outcasts. You ever felt like an outcast? We serve people in the streets. They all feel like outcasts. They feel like they're unclean, and this gave the leadership a reason to do that. And so the people came, and they came in desperation, and it says they, they pressed around him. They were literally falling all over him. Why? Because they're trying to do one thing. Y'all, they're just trying to touch him. They're, or to, they're trying to touch him, or they're trying to have him touch them because he had healed so many people with this touch. And when they touched him or when he touched them, instant and total healing. And so the crush is on. The second category of power that he displays is seen in verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. Unclean spirits, uh, uh, another term for agents of Satan or for demons or for fallen angels. And they were everywhere. They're indwelling people. In Capernaum in chapter 1 and verse 23, there's a man in the synagogue and Jesus is there teaching uh, in the synagogue. And this man is there in an unclean spirit. Jesus is there and this man is there. And, and, and there's an unclean spirit and he screams. Demons don't want to blow their cover, y'all. They don't want to be seen as evil and wretched. They want to hide and they want to do their deadly little demon work in the dark where nobody can really see. But when Jesus shows up, they go into a panic. James 2.19 says the demons believe and what? Shudder. They are terrified of him. They are in total terror and they're unable to keep silent. When Jesus comes into that synagogue, the demon screams in terror and says in verse 24, what, this is the demon talking, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, wow. That wow is not in the Bible. That wow is me. Wow. Verse 25 says, but Jesus rebuked him saying, shut up and come out of him. That is what he said. Shut up and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, the guy who he was in, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Not just teaching, but a teaching with the authority of God himself. He he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere. This is crucial, crucial proof that he has power not only over the natural world but over the supernatural world. If he in fact is the son of God, he's got power over creation, over the physical and over the spiritual. He is the son of God and so he must have power over Satan and over his little minions. And he did. And he did. And the demons are terrified in his presence. Don't you know they're terrified in his presence today? Don't you know that if he lives inside of you, nothing else can live inside of you? 
Something else tries to come and knocks on the door. You know who opens the door? Jesus opens the door and says, get out. That is what happens. That is what happens. Y'all, and what did they do to respond? Verse 11 says they fell down. Whenever he appeared and they saw him, the text literally says that they would fall down. The person they were living in would just hit the canvas in submission. The Greek word that's used there, it always, always means to bow down before. It doesn't mean he tripped and fell. When you read that in the scriptures, it doesn't mean he stumbled over his sandal and fell. It means he fell down, bowed down because he knows who the Lord is. And so Mark gives us a picture of the popularity of Jesus and then, and then the power of Jesus. And then third, there is the testimony of the person of Jesus. And it's really, we just hit on it because it comes from a most unlikely source. The demons, not only did they bow down, but they screamed out, you are the son of God. You know that they know the truth. They know the truth. They believe the truth. They know exactly who he is. They wouldn't fall down before him and scream in terror if they didn't. They believe the truth and they're terrified of it. And this is testimony added to the testimony from chapter 1 when God says from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It is testimony added to the testimony uh, of the demon in verse 24. You are the son of God. Well, who is this, y'all? Who is this Jesus? And he is none other than the son of God. The father states it. The demons knew it. The disciples struggle with it and wonder in chapter 4, who is this man? Finally, in chapter 8, Peter says, you are the Christ. Eventually, they come to believe that he is the Son of God, but the nation in mass never does. Never does. Some people do. Individuals do. But the nation in mass doesn't. They never confess him, and therefore they never believe, and therefore they never in mass receive eternal life the critics are not right jesus is not some man with this little crowd of people following him he is the son of god he is he is the messiah he is the savior he is he is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords the old testament religion emphasized the distance between me and god emphasize the distance between the sinner and God. The arrival of Jesus on the scene obliterates the distance. When he was crucified, the veil in the temple that protected the Holy of Holies from anybody coming in, when he was crucified, that veil was ripped in half. And do you even know the Greek word that's used for that veil ripping in half, being rent, the text says, is the same word that is used at the baptism when it said that the heavens were ripped open and God declared who He was. Y'all, access to Him is available to me and you right now. There is no distance. He is begging for you to come. He is reaching out His hand to me and you. That is what He's doing. He does it every day. We just have to see it. God comes near. There is no separation anymore. The law kept us at a distance. You're trying to work your way there. keeps you at a distance. The law scares us. Y'all, the law scared me for 37 years because I knew no matter what I did, I never could do it. 
I don't even know if that makes sense. I just never could do enough. What do you have to do to get to heaven? Well, I don't know because I can't do anything. I can't do enough because the law leads to death. It does. It leads to death. Jesus, on the other hand, comes near us and he welcomes us. We talked about that a little bit last week. He welcomes us. Hebrews chapter 10 says, draw near in full assurance of faith. The very last verse of this, this chapter, of this, this passage, verse 12, says, and he strictly ordered them, the demons, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. He warned them to keep their mouth shut. He had authority over them. He exercised the authority. Maybe they didn't all get it because maybe some of them missed that memo, but he tells them to keep their mouth shut. And that, Bob, I'm like, why is he telling them to keep their mouth shut? Well, he's telling them to keep their mouth shut because he doesn't need, they're not employees of his that are like his PR team. He doesn't need, he doesn't need them. And he doesn't want the people thinking that somehow they're on the same team. And that's why I believe, that's why he tells them, even though they're right when they say you are the son of God, he doesn't need necessarily their testimony. It's not quite time for this yet. It's all in God's good time. The important thing is this, then and now, then and now, the important thing is this, that individuals, individual people, people see, that see the miracles, people that saw the miracles, Lord knows people that see the birth of a child, people that see somebody healed where the doctor says, I don't know. I had a doctor tell me, I don't know, that couldn't have happened. If that had happened, he'd be dead. But a nurse practitioner said, it's God. Well, who's the believer there? People, individuals that see miracles, individuals that come to a realization that who he says he is, is true. And who he says you are, is true. So Mark establishes his purpose, and that is to tell the story of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, and that's a title of God that no Jew in Israel would ever have mistaken. And he kind of of proves that in these first few chapters of his gospel. And so here's what I ask you. The only thing left to do is what do you say? Who do you say that he is? His message is pretty clear. His message is that he came to wreck the old covenant. He came to wreck the distortion of salvation by works. He came to wreck the distortion of you being able to do anything because you can't. And that takes submission, y'all, because we, the world tells us that you get what you deserve. The world tells us that, that you, anything you do, there's a consequence and there's a, a reward for this and that. But the gospel says, no, you get exactly what you don't deserve. Think about that. Grace makes no sense. It makes no sense other than it is the most crazy, unbelievable love that is unimaginable. And then it sort of makes sense. But the truth is, he is who he says he is. And my question is, how are you going to respond? That's all. How are you going to respond? If you don't know him today, he is reaching out his hand. The veil is torn. And you can get to him yourself individually. You can't have mama's faith. You can't have your wife's faith. You can't have your daddy's faith. You can't have your kids' faith. He is reaching out to you individually.
And so I would beg you, if you don't know Him today, to walk through that torn veil. Because you can get to the Holy of Holies. It is available to us today. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love You. And we understand how much You love us. At least in some sort of a way, we understand how much You love us. Lord, let us just get our arms around who You say we are. Let us somehow get our arms around and understand that You loved us enough to die for us. That You loved us enough to jump on the cross and buy us back from our sin. Lord, I pray for anybody, and I know that they're here, anybody in this room that walked in this morning and doesn't know You, that they are at a crossroads in their life, that they are sitting on top of the fence, and I'm begging that they just submit and fall down at the foot of your cross right now. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.